Colossians chapter 11. Throughout the summer, we've been slowly but surely ministering about faith and the good report and vision in Hebrews 11. And I, I want us to continue by looking at verses 28 and 29. I don't know how far I will get, but I want to teach this morning a message entitled, How to Live and Not Die. How to Live and Not Die. Hebrews 11, verse 28, through faith, Moses kept the Passover, the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians tried to do, but were drowned. How to live and not die. Father, for the next few moments as I minister this word, I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice would be stirred up and touched by what we say. Let something be declared in this message that would encourage and edify. Give us all something to meditate on throughout this week. I pray, God, for the other churches in the community and in the county. Pray that you would raise up men and women that would preach the word of God in truth without fear or compromise. And I pray, God, there really would be a move of God amongst your people. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Back in 1983, there was the Ultra Marathon in Australia. It was a race of some 544 miles. They had contestants that came from all around the world to be involved with this. But one contestant was a little out of place, seemingly. The reporters were going around interviewing the different runners who had come and were asking them about their training. There was one elderly gentleman, I say elderly, older man, 61, and they came to the trailer where he was sitting and they opened it up and smoke came out of the trailer. His trainer was sitting there who was older than him. His trainer had a cigar in his mouth. The man who was running in the race was Cliff Young. He was 61. He was wearing overalls and had on some work boots. That's what he came to run the race in. Well, when they got everybody at the starting line and the starting gun went off and people started the race, people ran for hours. And then by the time the sun had set and nightfall had come, the runners had stopped to lay down for five or six hours, but Cliff Young laid down for two hours and got up and started running again. The second day, the runners got up and did the same thing, ran all day. Come nightfall, they laid down again for five or six hours. That second night, Cliff laid down for only one hour. By the third day, Cliff was far ahead of the rest of the runners, and the runners had no idea. He already had a 10-hour lead over all of them. He completed that race in five hours, set every record a person could possibly think, and you would wonder how could these people dressed in shorts and tennis shoes be outrun by men in overalls and work boots. 
They asked him. He told them that he was raised on a 2,000-acre farm. His parents had 2,000 sheep and said it was during the Depression. They didn't have any kind of horses or anything, so the parents used the children to round up the sheep out there on the hill. And he said he would get out and go to run in those hills, and he would say that would be an all-day affair, just trying to bring all of those sheep back to where mom and dad wanted them. And so it wasn't difficult for him at all to not sleep in the evening because he said he hardly slept for days when he was rounding up the sheep. And they said to him, well, how is it that you motivated yourself to run this race Without taking long breaks, he said, I imagined that a storm was coming and I had to get all the sheep together before the storm arrived. I want you to think about the power of vision. When you look in Hebrews chapter 11, you do discover that it's not only a chapter about trust and confidence and faith, but it's a chapter about vision because the Scripture says that Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. That's vision. The Scripture tells us in Hebrews 11, verse number 13, that these all died in the faith, having received the promises. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Vision is a powerful thing. And the person who possesses it has insight that is hidden to other people. When you have a promise from God, you have to believe that that promise can come to pass. Once you know and believe that that promise comes to pass, then you have spiritual insight that other people don't possess. And you're fully assured in your heart that the Lord will bring it to pass because you're looking for a city made by God. All over this earth, there are people persecuted for their faith, Christians that love God with a pure heart, but they live with a vision of a place where they can worship God freely without being persecuted or condemned. Plenty of people like that. I remember one time when I lived in Peru back in 1977, the family I was living with, way up in the mountains amongst the Quechuan Indians, they gave me a book called One Bright Shining Path. That book so charmed me and fascinated me, I never could go to sleep that evening. It wasn't a long book, maybe 200-something pages, but it was about a man named Romulo Sonye, an illiterate Indian child who grew up, but some missionaries brought Jesus Christ into his life, and as he was witnessing and telling folks about the Lord, the terrorist organization, Sendero Luminoso, Shining Path, they were rising up. They were killing Christians, butchering Christians. They'd go into a village where Christians were and then take all the Christians to the center of town and then just shoot them dead with all the other villagers standing around. They took one old man who had to be over 90. He loved the Lord. He was rebuking the terrorists, saying, what you're doing is wrong. You'll stand before God for what you're doing. And they killed that old man in front of the entire village. And before the man's heart had stopped beating, they had plunged a knife in his chest and pulled it out and was holding it up in front of everybody. And here I'm in the house with the people that helped lead that young man, Romulo Sonye, to the Lord. 
and I'm reading the book, looking at the names of people that I'd come to know personally as I was living in Peru. And I read that book, and I thought, these folks have given everything for Christ. The Bible says they didn't receive the promises, but they saw them afar off. Folks that are worshiping God today in rice fields, in the jungles of Burma, Vietnam, and Laos, people that are up on the tops of mountain plateaus in Brazil, across South America, people in small towns out here in America where they are being persecuted because of their love for the Lord, they have cast their eyes upon a promise. God has promised to save their child, their grandchildren. They're believing, they're trusting, they're dealing with trials and temptations, but yet they have learned that I've got to walk with God despite the temptation to fall away. And plenty of people backslide. There are a lot of people that can't handle difficulty, and because of that, they turn away from the faith and go in the opposite direction. But you can live the life of Christ and live the divine life of Christ if you're fully committed to who Jesus is. The Bible teaches us how to live and not die. You don't have to go backwards. Well, in God's dealing with people in Hebrews 11, and in particular with Moses, you realize that all the Israelites were not privy to the private conversations that Moses had at the burning bush. Sometimes God deals with you individually, and other people don't know that he's dealing with you at all. Let's not forget, Jacob was on the run from his brother who wanted to kill him, and God came to him in a dream, and he saw a ladder stretched from earth to heaven, angels going up and down. God dealt with them privately. Let's not forget that Samuel was just a little kid and he kept hearing the voice of God calling his name and Eli didn't quite understand it until Samuel had told him on the fourth occasion, I believe God is calling me or somebody's calling me. And sometimes when God's working on the, the heart of a young person, you may not understand what's going on. God's not talking to you, he's talking to them. He's dealing with that heart, speaking to them individually, singularly, trying to get their attention. The Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was ready to arrest some Christians in Syria, and he had people with him. But yet he was arrested by Christ in the glorious light. He saw Christ. He heard the voice. The people around him did not see a thing. Sometimes when God's dealing with you, he's not dealing with your friends, and he's not dealing with your family. But you have to be willing to yield and submit to what God is saying to you. Now, in verses 28 through 31, you have four specific episodes. All of them deal with some type of faith in God or fear in God. Two of them involve Moses. Two of the episodes involve Joshua. You've got three miracles, the kind of which the world had never seen before. Parting of the Red Sea. Walls. Falling down flat. Death angel passing through Egypt. These things had never occurred before. But yet the story of Rahab being delivered is not a story of distinction because God had delivered people before. And God still delivers people today out of the worst of circumstances. So if I'm going to tell you how to live and not die, there are certain principles that I think are important. And the first one I would tell you from verse 28 is you've got to get up under the blood. 
up under the blood. Now here's the story. In Exodus chapter 12, God says to Moses, there's trouble coming to Egypt, and it's coming quickly. I want you to tell all the Israelites, every family is to get a lamb. And I want them to hold that lamb to the fifth day. But on the fifth day, they're to sacrifice that lamb. And then they're going to take some of the blood from that lamb. And over their house, over the lentils, and around the doorpost, they're going to put that blood. And that blood is going to be a visible token to me that when the angel of death passes through Egypt, they're to skip that house to pass over that home. And if a family is too small to eat one whole lamb, then you take several families and combine it. But you're to eat everything, not leave anything behind. Well, that's exactly what they did. They got their lambs on a particular day. They sacrificed the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and God had made it very plain to them. Now, once you put the blood on the doorpost and you enter into your house, nobody is to leave the house till sunrise. Nobody. You stay inside the house. Your safety is in the house. Your house has now become your refuge. I don't care what kind of yelling and screaming and wailing you hear out in the cities, in the streets, and however much people are yelling and banging and screaming, saying, come out here and help us. You stay in your home up under the blood. That's what they did. The children of Israel had been a rebellious people. They had complained to Moses, complained to God about Moses. But yet here you can see in this story, God, through that blood, has shown to them forgiveness. Because again, he's going to deliver them despite their idolatries. Now it's important for you and I to know this, that Jesus himself has provided blood for us as our sacrifice. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. That is to say that we've been spared from the judgment that should come to us. For it's appointed unto man to die one time and then the judgment. But yet if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, because of the blood you're safe from guilt and fear, condemnation, shame, doubts. You're safe. And once you get up under the blood, it's best for you to stay up under the blood. And don't allow any temptation to pull you out from under that. There are distractions in this world where the devil is constantly trying to pull you out of your safe refuge of Christ and out into the Egyptian world of bondage. And there's tantalizing things, fascinating temptations that come to us. And in our heart we think, well, it's not so bad if I just tiptoe out there for a little while to see what's going on. I can flee back into the house and find safety. But most people, when they step out of the refuge of the blood, they hardly ever return. They get out there in Egypt and they're doing their own thing. But I'm telling you, when you get up under the blood, that is exactly where you should stay because Satan would love to see you backslide and walk away from God. And you'll start thinking you can save yourself. The only thing that saves is the blood of Jesus. Can you say amen? There's nothing else that brings deliverance. Now, whatever your background, that blood provides forgiveness. 
and you may have been raised in terrible circumstances. You could have been harmed. You could have been abused. You could have been exploited. You could have come from a wonderful family, but yet your parents weren't born again. They were, you know, self-righteous or atheists, believed in and of themselves. They were just good people. But I'm telling you, when you become a Christian and you accept Christ as your Savior, the blood washes your sins, clears you of your past, and you don't have to feel ashamed anymore about how you used to live. You've been forgiven. So why feel shameful? And why experience the condemnation that comes from the devil constantly pointing out to you your parents' faults, your faults, your grandparents' faults, your angry at this person, angry at this other person. There's always something causing you to feel like you've been victimized by someone when the Scripture says we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by our testimony. You've been forgiven. So walk away from the shame. Walk away from the guilt. I've done a lot of things in my past that are just exactly that in the past. And they're under the blood. I've done a lot of things I'm ashamed of before I became a Christian. Things that I would not want you to ever even know that I did. But it's under the blood. And I'm saved. And I don't feel any condemnation about a life that I used to live before I came to know Christ. Jesus came to lift us up so that judgment could pass over us because of the blood of the Lamb. And I think you should understand that and believe the same thing. Otherwise, you're going to spend your life trying to purify yourself, make yourself better, and you'll never be better. It can only happen through Jesus. Overseas one time, there was an annual festival where the people were attempting to sanctify themselves and deal with their sins. And so seven or eight Buddhist priests come out to the edge of the village, hundreds of people that come out there to watch this annual event. The priests set up piles of coals, set them on fire, then spread them out in this little pallet because they've got to walk on them. Now, this still goes on to this day. Well, they heated those things up really hot, and then All of those priests in front of the people took some salt, put the salt in their hair, wiped their face, wiped the bottom of their feet in order to purify themselves according to their traditions and their religion. And then in front of everybody, over all of those hot coals, thousands of hot coals that stretched some 10 feet or more, they started at one end and just walked steadily and determinedly across those coals. Nobody screamed, nobody yelled. They went from one end to the other. The underside of no foot was scorched or burnt. The second one went. The third one went. And when the people saw that none of the priests were harmed, then the people started taking off their shoes and sandals and rolling up all of their pants legs and grabbing the salt and putting it on them so that they also could walk across the fires, and that's exactly what they did. After a lot of prayers, a lot of rituals, they all walked across that burning fire, and they believed afterwards for one year now they'd be pure in their religion. Folks, I'm telling you right now, we can save you a whole lot of that. 
by just coming to know Jesus Christ and knowing that the blood is what saves and sanctifies. You don't have to roll up your pants legs and walk across snow coals anywhere in order to demonstrate that you're pure. All you need to know is that by accepting Christ as your Savior, you've now allowed him to put his blood upon the doorposts of your heart. You found a safe haven in him. You're under the blood now. Stay there. Enjoy it. Embrace it because you're delivered and forgiven. Well, notice in verse Number 29, then, it speaks about having passed through the Red Sea. Now, we've told you to get under the blood. Now I want you to see you need to step into your miracle. In Exodus 13, it tells us that the children of Israel had been told to leave Egypt because of the death of all of these firstborn kids. People were yelling screaming, sadness, sorrow. Can you imagine more than a million people or more trying to make their way from their homes through the deserts out into the wilderness? You take the population of Nebraska, the population of Kansas, just about combine it. And imagine all of us following one person and we're all trying to make our way down to North Texas. Do you know what kind of a path we'd all leave crossing fields? It wouldn't be difficult in daytime or nighttime to find all of us. This is exactly what happened here. Millions of them came out of Egypt, and they started making their way through the wilderness. And right about the time they hit that desert sand, Pharaoh realized he just allowed his workforce to depart. He told his army, go and get them and bring them back. Well, it wasn't hard. They went out there. you got millions of little footprints out there. They just followed them where they went. The Bible says God led them not through the land of the Philistines, lest they have to fight and they get discouraged. They weren't prepared to fight. They'd been slaves. They weren't ready for battle. They needed to be led gently. So God took them a long way, a long meandering route, and brought them to a place where when they arrived, they thought this is like an oasis, the Red Sea, a place of refreshment. There's a mountain on this side, mountain on this side, too steep to climb, and then there's water out here, the Red Sea. But in the blackness of the night, they could hear the chariot wheels as they're making their way through that wilderness, and they could probably hear the voices of those Egyptian soldiers. And when the people looked up and saw all of the army coming against them, the Bible says they were frantic and afraid, and they said, Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. And you know they were running in different directions and screaming and yelling, and people were afraid, trying to get away from the enemy. And this is why in Exodus 13, Moses had to stand up and lift his voice and say, Stand still! See the salvation of God. Because sometimes when you're afraid, you make some of the worst decisions of your life. Yeah. And once they finally settled down, God said to Moses, what do you have in your hand? He said, I've got a rod. He said, stretch it out over the waters. He did so. And then they heard a sound that was different. 
They'd all heard wind before. They'd never heard or seen the force of wind this powerful. The east wind came, and right in the midst of them went straight up in the middle of the Red Sea, formed a wall on either side, and it was so powerful that the ground dried up. The Bible says, shoulder by shoulder, they marched across, and they all went through in one night. Now, for more than a million people to cross the Red Sea on dry ground in one night, that means that God would have had to have blown a hole in that Red Sea that was a mile and a half wide for all of them to cross over. That's exactly what God did. Now, they were standing there. I'm sure there were people thinking, I'd love to climb that hill, but they couldn't do it. And before God opened up the water, they realized they couldn't walk on it. They couldn't drink all of that. And they had no desire to go backwards to see those Egyptian soldiers who wanted to march them back into slavery. But yet when God opened up that waterway, I wonder how many of them were too nervous to step into it. I wonder how many of them were afraid. How many of them were thinking, if we step out there, what's going to happen? Maybe the waters are coming on us. But no, once the first Israelite put that first footprint in that riverbed, deliverance came to them all. So, folks, I'm telling you that when God opens up a door for you, even when it doesn't look to you like it'll work out, you've got to be willing to step into your miracle. Or you'll die with the Egyptians. You'll die in slavery. You've got to make a decision. I want to come out of this addiction. I want to break the power of this alcohol. I want to be done with tobacco. I want to turn my back on a life filled with sin and iniquity. And God has opened up a door for you. Step into the miracle. You can stand there and look backwards and think that Egypt is wonderful, and it isn't. You can stand there and look at the hills on either side and think you're strong enough with your own willpower to overcome your trouble, or you can look at that miracle before you and step into it and see what God will bring to you. He'll bring you blessing. He'll bring something outstanding for you. But you've got to be willing to move into something that to you may seem difficult. This isn't for a preacher. This is for anybody. Grandmas and grandpas were holding little babies. Can you imagine grandparents holding little kids the age of little Kay or Adley, and they're coming through that Red Sea and there that wall of water. Middle of the night, God is preserving them. Well, how is God preserving them? God had an angel that came from the front of Israel, came to the back of Israel, And then there was a cloud that came between Israel and the Egyptians. And the Bible says that cloud became darkness to the Egyptians, but it became light for those that were Israelites. And God will do the kind of miracle for you that will make it possible for you to embrace the liberty that he's provided for you. If, in fact, you will trust him, you've got to trust him. They stepped into that miracle, made it to the other side. Miriam pulled out the tambourine, and they all went to praising God, glorifying the king. Well, I've watched people become afraid in troublesome times, and fear will run you in five different directions. Let somebody lose their job, and they've got bills they have to pay. Let somebody lose their loved one, and they're wondering how they're going to make it. 
fear will drive them in different directions. On Monday, they'll be saying, I really think I need to do this. By Tuesday, they got a whole totally different plan. By Wednesday, I think God's telling me to do this. Come Thursday, have another plan. Fear will drive you in all these different directions, and you'll never get anywhere. But at some point, you've got to stand still and say, God, help me to know what to do and where to go. He'll help you. Yeah. There was a man named Leonard Bolton. He was not a preacher. But in high school, back around 1915, 16 or so, he had a vision. In that vision, he saw Jesus on the cross. And in that vision, he'd walked towards the cross, looked like the hands of Jesus had reached out towards him. He said, from that dream, he became a Christian and was converted. Not from a sermon, not from something he read in the Bible, but obviously he must have known the story of Jesus in order to understand that whole cross thing. But, but he said, from that vision, he was instantly converted. He wanted to serve God. He went into the military, World War I, while he was serving abroad, he had some friends that died when their area was shelled, and somebody actually had dropped a missile in his area, and he ended up in the infirmary, had somewhat lost his vision, was numb physically, but laying there as a little 21-year-old or so, he said, God, I don't understand this. You, you saved me. I mean, surely there's got to be more to my life than dying in a foreign country in a war. He went to sleep, had another dream, just like the first dream. He said it looked like he saw Jesus on the cross, and he said he started walking to the cross. He said those hands reached out to him, and then he heard a voice, and the voice said to him, I haven't brought you this far to kill you or for you to lose your life. He said from that moment when he woke up, he knew, despite all the horrors of World War I that he had seen, he knew he was going to survive. When he finally made it back to the States, Again, he isn't a preacher, but he's wanting to give his life to God, trying to figure out how to serve God. And, and he got it in his head after listening to different people talk about their service abroad. He said, well, Lord, should I go to India? Should I go to Africa? Should I go to China? And just like the first two times, he had another dream. And in this dream, he saw a man that looked like he had crossed an ocean to come to where he was. And this man's name, I believe last name was Lure or Brewer or something like that. And the man said to him, would you please come over here to Tibet and help us? Help us on the borders of Tibet and China. So when the man woke up, he, he really felt like he was called to go to China. He just didn't know how to get it started. Two weeks later, he met a man's wife, whose last name was Lure or Brewer, and she was a missionary on furlough from over there, but her husband was still there. And she told him all about the Tibet-China border ministry. Well, this is just like what Paul had when he saw the man Macedonia had the vision saying, come over here in Greece and help us. So he started making preparations. He's still, he's not a preacher. But he just wants to give himself to serving the king. He takes a ship, goes all the way over as far as he can over to Southeast Asia. He's going to be there for five or six years, so he takes five or six years worth of goods. He's got 26 horses. 
and donkeys carrying all of his materials. That's a whole caravan for himself. And he says after he had been gone along with a guide that couldn't speak English and he couldn't speak any of the, the Burmese language that was trying to take him as far as he could up that Mekong River, he said as he was traveling, he said a messenger came to him with a letter because he was supposed to be met by that man Brewer that he saw in that dream. And he said, here's what the letter said. It said, Brother so-and-so was making his way from the mission station to come and meet you. However, he crossed a swollen river and he drowned in the river. He died. Man, he was going there to help. So he's praying, saying, God, what is your will for my life? Then he realized God hadn't brought him this far just to leave him there. So he pressed on. Some six weeks later, he made it through bandits and robbers and thieves and marauders that came to, to steal some of his goods, and God provided supernaturally. But when he, he was trying to make his way there, one of his helpers died. He took malaria and died. He thought, Lord, this is getting worse and worse. But in the, in the end, he made it to that station, gave 40 years of his life to telling people about Jesus and working amongst those missionaries that were there, helping and doing whatever he could do to assist them. 40 years and all of that because of a dream that he had of a man that said, come. Now, I told you that because I want you to see that with the children of Israel, God doesn't always lead you through an easy pathway. Sometimes God leads you through a path that has some thorns and some difficulties and some troubles. You'll experience some miracles, but it's still troublesome sometimes. And here's a man that God called through a dream to come and replace a man who God knew was going to die when he spoke to the young man in the dream. And I'm telling you, when God leads you and guides us, God knows what lays ahead. And you may think your path today isn't the easiest, and you may say, you don't know, Daryl, my life is pretty rough. I've just had a lot of difficulties in my life. Well, maybe you have, but you're not the first person to have difficulties in your life. And you won't be the last person to have difficulties in your life. But I can tell you this, through those difficulties, you'll find opportunities for miracles, and when God provides one, you step right into it. Because you'll never enjoy the benefits of the miraculous blessings and power of God if you simply stay back and stand still and refuse to move. But if you move into what God has called you to do and what he's calling you to do, he'll do exceptional things with you. It starts with a decision. So if you want to see God change your life and the lives of others, don't be afraid to move with God. Don't be afraid to move with God you really want to see a Red Sea open up for you and see the kinds of miracles that other people have never seen before, don't be afraid to move with God. But all you have to do to live an ordinary, mundane life that's boring for you and depressing for you is just stand there and stare at the Egyptians for the rest of your life. That's all you have to do. But if you're not afraid to put that foot into that riverbed, you're going to find that in your life, God's going to do some exceptional things for you. That's two ways how you can live and not die. Plenty of people 
made the decision a long time ago. They're going to walk with God and they're going to trust the king. And you look back at the people you've known through the decades of your life, I can promise you, there have been plenty of people that have been swallowed up by bitterness, unbelief, anger. Walked with God for a few weeks, a few months, and then slid away and backslid. Those kind of people, they don't see the Red Sea open for them. But if you make the decision, I'm going to serve God, put him first and walk with him, the moment you, you do that, that's like putting your foot in the midst of that dry ground of that Red Sea. And when you do that, that's when God starts doing wonderful things for you. But don't expect a miracle if you're not going to trust God. But if you're going to trust God, expect a miracle. Yeah. If I was a guide and I was leading people in different places around this nation and I felt like that's what God wanted me to do, lead people through forests, or jungles, or wild terrain. Every time I got out there, I'd believe I was in the will of God, and I expect God to protect me from every puma, every cougar. There wouldn't be a bear that I was afraid of because I'd honestly believe that God's going to protect me. I'd take every precaution, but I'd believe this is where I'm supposed to be in the will of God. There are plenty of pastors out here, folks, that preach every day. and They're depressed. They pray tired, preach through sadness and sorrow, have no expectation that they'll see a harvest or that God will do anything. But being where you're supposed to be, you can always have an expectation that God's going to do something. Yeah. If I was a farmer, it didn't matter how bad things looked out here. It could go three months in that rain. Somehow or another, I'd still be believing and expecting God is going to take my ground. If he don't touch anybody else's ground, he's going to water my ground supernaturally from the earth upward if he had to. Somehow or another, he's going to do that. I believe that despite all the things that I see because we walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah, you have to. If I was a doctor... And I had to deal with patients, and people are dying, and there's a plague, and it troubles everywhere. If, if I'm going to be a doctor, I can't be afraid of disease. If I'm going to be a nurse, I can't be afraid of colds and flus and illnesses. How are you going to minister to the sick if you're afraid of the illness? Somebody has to have an expectation that there's a power strong enough to help me. And you know as well as I do, most times when you see people in the hospital, they are not having their best day. And when nurses and doctors and, and CNAs have to deal with patients, they're dealing with cranky, irritated people because pain has a tendency to make you that way. But if I worked there, I'd be praying every day, God, I'm just believing you're going to keep me from the flu. You're going to keep me from this. You're going to keep me from that. You're going to preserve my life because this is the calling of my life, and I expect you to do for me what you did for the children of Israel. What other way is there to pray? I mean, what, are you going to walk around afraid? I mean, if we're going to live our life in fear, what's the point of living at all? But to walk with God, we have the expectation he'll be with us. Amen? Amen. So you, you can live, and, and you can live well, and you can live by faith, and you can trust God. And we want to believe that the king will continue to do that for us. Caleb, find the song you can play in the background for me, please. But folks, our faith, we've got to feed our faith, starve our doubts, allow God to move and minister in our hearts and in our lives. And if you're facing a Red Sea situation in your life, you're about to experience a miracle. 
That's what you're about to experience. If you feel like you've got Egyptians chasing you and trouble on every hand, don't worry. One day you're not going to see the Egyptians anymore because the miracle that delivers you is the miracle that will swallow up the Egyptians. And God is big enough and strong enough to take care of us. Amen? Amen. Come on, let's stand. Let's stand. Praise God. Sam, I do want to pray for you. I think it's a blessing. We've got people in that public school system that know Jesus. You want to pray and ask God to help her. In fact, Miles, you need some prayer too. I mean, got you over there in that school. So important to be able to remember. Anybody else in here working in the school system that I don't know about? I thought I pretty much knew where everybody is around here. But you two, come on down here. Come on down here. Pastor, I want to pray for you folks. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Just face me. Just face me. Yeah. And, and folks, as we agree and, and pray, I'll tell you how we pray for our teachers. As God preserve our teachers. God give our teachers patience. How many of you know Sam needs patience dealing with these little ones? Yeah, these, these, these little ones can get on people's nerves. And, of course, Miles, he doesn't have to worry too much about it because he's bigger than all of them. However, kids can still be obstinate, and sometimes the people that you work with aren't always the best. But I want us to pray. I want us to pray. Let me get some guys to come down here. We're going to lay hands on Miles. Let me get some ladies to come down here. We're going to lay hands on Sam, and we're going to pray a blessing over them and ask the king to preserve and keep our people. And, of course, uh, Sam, Sam's got these triplets in here. It's only one. You sure? It's only one. No triplets there. Ah, uh, but November, November, we'll find out if Pastor's right. All right, just just the one there. But but look, uh, we're praying for you, not to embarrass you, but praying for you because we love you, wanting God to preserve and keep you. Let Jesus be the one that guards and guides your heart, and and don't allow. Family and friends ever discourage you in your walk with God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Come on, folks, let's stretch forth our hands. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we lay hands on these two right now. And, Father, I thank you that you well positioned them, that in the midst of a school system, they're a light, oh God. And, Father, we're not people that believe that any public institution in our nation needs to be abandoned. We need salt and light there. So, Father, I pray that you give them favor, that you bless them and keep them by your mighty power. I pray, God, that you fill Miles' heart with the Word of God so that his conversation would be seasoned with grace every day that he speaks with his peers. And, Father, I pray for Sam. Every time she walks into that classroom, let great grace be upon her. I pray for all of her students, the ones that may be unruly, the ones that may have mouths on them. I pray, God, deal with every one of those kids right now as we're here in this altar. Minister to her heart. Flood her heart with a great love. Thank you for the calling upon her to love children, to minister to children. I pray that you would enlarge her heart and give her a greater vision for what can happen, oh God, if you use her. And then, Father, bring this little baby safely into this world. 
in a healthy way without complication or difficulty. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen, 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 amen. What a joy. Ah, what a joy. God is so good. We love you, Amen, little lady. Big fella. Praise God. Amen. Good to know the king, folks. I don't know how anybody makes it in this world without a church family. I, goodness, I wouldn't want to go to the post office without a pastor, a church family, somebody that loves me, people I can be connected to. Remember, Wednesday night we'll be here, and we're uh, going to have a good time getting into the Word. We want you to have a blessed day, blessed week. We don't pass the plate here. Offering tithing receptacles to my left, to your right. Be faithful in your giving to the Lord, and God will continue to bless you. Amen? Amen. Now as we depart from this place, but never from his presence, Lord, we thank you for being with us all until we come here again and gather in the mighty name of Jesus. We do love you. And everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen.